You know, my freshman year at Auburn, uh, the very first day of class in my philosophy class, my teacher started by saying, you know, the biggest intellectual problem I have with Christianity. I was like, wow, okay, here we go. Um, He said, my biggest problem with Christianity is that Jesus said he was going to return, and he hasn't returned yet, and that makes Jesus a liar, does it not? How do you follow a Savior who said he was going to return within one generation, that's his interpretation of the passage, and he has not yet returned? You know, my professor uh, was concerned with the question of when, It's the question of when around Jesus' return. And throughout the centuries since Jesus ascended into heaven, the church has actually fallen into the same problem over and over again. Our teachers, our philosophers, we have movements and leaders who are trying to predict the day and the hour, the when around the return of Christ. Later on in my academic uh, pursuits, I was at RTS and I was taking a class, an intensive, which is a one-week class, so you're in class for eight hours a day. Um, the professor was Michael Horton, and he spent all of Tuesday and all of Wednesday, 16 hours walking us through all the movements of history within the church or within, you know, within heresies around the church where people have tried to predict the, the return of Christ, the when around the return of Christ, and have led people astray. And his basic message to us after those two days was, that's not anything that you should, be, you should be doing as pastors. If anyone is doing that, if anyone begins to predict the when around the return of Christ, even Jesus said he didn't know the day or the hour. But he felt like it was important enough for us to take 16 hours to chronicle all of the movements of history. When I was growing up, you know, I was growing up in the 80s, and there was a movement, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 88 And people were just swept up in this movement. I was convinced that Jesus was going to come back in 1988. And I was praying my prayers every day when 89 rolled around. I didn't know what to do with myself, right? So the win around the return of Christ has always been a concern for the church. It actually goes back to the disciples. In Matthew 24, Jesus is is about to go to Jerusalem. And he is in Jerusalem to be, uh, he's on the way to being crucified He's there, and he's there with his disciples. He's there at Herod's temple. And the disciples, all they want to talk about is the architectural marvel of Herod's temple. Isn't this amazing building? And Jesus wasn't concerned at all to talk with them about the beautiful architecture of the building. All he was interested in was telling them that it would one day be torn down stone by stone. Jesus wasn't concerned about architecture. He was concerned about what was going to be happening at the end of time. Later on, after Jesus is raised from the dead in Acts 1, he's about to go to heaven. And the disciples, at this crucial moment in history, what do they want to talk about? They say, at this time in verse 6, Acts 1 verse 6, at this time, Jesus, since you've been raised from the dead, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says in verse 7, it is not for you to know the day or the hour. It's not the day or the hour that I will return. He doesn't reinforce the when. He doesn't answer the when question. Jesus is much more concerned not about the when of his return, but the why of his return, the what for around his return. Why is he going to return? What is he waiting for in order to return? And when he returns, what will he 
be doing. In that moment when they want an answer to the when question, Jesus answers the why question. He says, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to send my spirit to you for what reason? So that you will go out in mission to the world to tell the nations the gospel. Throughout the centuries, whenever we talk about the return of Christ, even as we read this passage, it's tempting to be starting to think about, is, are we in the very last days? I'll talk about that in just a minute. How does our time line up with this passage? And okay, that's not a bad question, but it's not the best question. The best question is not around the when will Jesus return. The question that Jesus wants us to ask, and he repeatedly redirected his disciples to ask, is why is he going to return? What is he waiting for? When he, re- when he returns, what will he be doing? These are the questions that Jesus wants us to be thinking about as we approach this passage. You know, this is Revelation 6 and part of 7 and 8. Jamie, you did a great job reading that long passage. Thank you. In Revelation 5, Mark Jung, uh, who was up here leading, uh, preached a couple of weeks ago and did a great job on this, this passage. You can't understand Revelation 6 without understanding Revelation 5. Revelation 5, we have Jesus, we have him ascended, we have him seated at the right hand of God, standing actually at the right hand of God, standing as one who has been slain. He is the lion lamb standing at the right hand of God as one who has been slain. And when he appears, why does he appear? Before he appears, there is weeping and wailing in heaven because there is this scroll that cannot be opened. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And there's only one person who can open up the scroll. The scroll represents the unfolding of all that will happen in redemptive history. And so in heaven, because that scroll of God's unfolding plan cannot be opened because it's sealed with seven seals and there's only one person that can open it and he's not yet there, there is weeping in heaven that God's purposes cannot be revealed. And then Jesus appears. Jesus appears and he is the one who unlocks the seven seals. He is the one who unlocks the scroll. He's the one who unlocks the opening of God's redemptive plan. And so we have Jesus at the throne, at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we read about these seven seals, as we study them, we need to recognize that we have Jesus there standing sovereign over the revelation of God in all of history. Now that makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, honestly, because it makes me ask the question, why? Why? Why is this the plan, and if this is the plan, and there's so much that we're going to go into, there's a lot of death, there's martyrdom, there's, there's a lot of difficulty, there's a lot of suffering that comes upon the world and on the church. How is it that Jesus, the ruling lion lamb, stands sovereign over history? What, are, what is he waiting for? Just this last week with Israel and Gaza is the most recent example. What is Jesus waiting for? Why is he waiting? We need to be less concerned about when will he return, but the question that Jesus actually wants us to ask him is why. Why are you waiting? And Jesus, I believe, gives us an answer to the question in this passage. So Jesus is ruling at the right hand of God in heaven now, and the first thing we see to explain how he can be reigning 
but all of this is still happening, is that for a time, his rule, though it is real, it is restrained. It is a real rule, but it is a restrained rule for a time. So the first point this morning is that his reign is a reign that is restrained, a reign that is restrained. And we see this in seals one through four. So seals one through four can be grouped together. They often have been. If you've ever, you've ever heard the term of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these are the four horsemen. They go with the four seals and they group together, show this period of time where, where judgment is coming on the earth. Where, where Jesus is restraining his rule. These things are happening under his sovereignty in the last days as these four seals are opened up. And they show us a vivid and alarming picture of desolation that will come on the earth in the last days. Now, the last days, let's talk about that. So I grew up believing that the last days, and if you read that in the Bible or you heard a preacher say it, meant the very last days, the, the very last either three and a half or seven years of time before Jesus returned. I don't believe that's the best way to understand what the last days is. I believe the last days begun as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven. And so we have been living as the church in the last days. You right now are living and I are living in the last days. We have been living in the last days. We have been living, you could say we are living in a period of time we could call the apocalypse. We are living in the end of days. Not necessarily the last seven years, I don't know that. Even Jesus says he doesn't know that, only the Father knows that. But we should read this section, this, 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 this period of time with the four seals as applying to us right now in living history. This is important because we usually think when we read about this that it's going to be a time in the future that we should prepare for. But the better way to read it is that we're in the last days now and this in some ways describes what we are experiencing now in the last days today. Now as you heard this section, the first four seals especially read aloud, it was probably hard for you to follow along with. It's hard for everybody to follow along with. It doesn't read like a narrative um, it's not like a tidy little picture. You know, if you go into a museum of war, you might see pictures that are taken of like one person who's killed, or maybe you've seen pictures that have been up on social media about what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And as hard as it for us to understand the whole war, if you see a picture of a person, it gives you some glimpse into one person's life, and maybe you can understand it a little bit better. But that's not what John does for us here. The better way to understand how John is writing this is as these visions are going across his mind, he is painting a picture for us of destruction, of, of chaos, of war. A better way to look at it would be Picasso's painting in 1937 called Guernica. Olivia and I had an opportunity to visit Picasso's museum in Malaga, Spain. We went there for our anniversary. Uh, it was our 23rd, but... Uh, 20th because of COVID and all that stuff. But anyway, we were there. We got to go to Picasso's museum. Uh, it's not in that museum, but there's a painting that Picasso has called Guernica of 1937. And all of this, all this is, and it's in the Picasso style, and it's just body parts everywhere. It's body parts. And, and the, the, the goal of the painting is in 1937, the beginning of World War II, and it's to arrest you and cause you to feel disgust and outrage and to feel discomfort. 
And that's a better way of understanding the way that John is writing here. It's more like Picasso than it is like a war photo. He's trying to paint a picture for us of the chaos so that it will be evocative, so that we'll feel it, so that we'll in some way understand through our emotions what is being communicated to us. I want you to notice with me the honesty of the Bible. Okay, the Bible doesn't hold back from describing the very difficult things that we see happening right now on our phones or on our televisions. The Bible doesn't hold back from any of that. The Bible, it doesn't pull punches. It describes for us the real difficulties, the, the terrible realities we face today, such as Hamas and Israel or the war with Russia and Ukraine or many other wars that are happening and battles that are happening um, and, and all of the realities that flow from war that are so full of brokenness. But as we get into these four seals, let's walk through them one by one and explain them. The first seal has to do with military conquest. This white horse comes with the, the threat of military invasion. At the time of the writing of Revelation, there was a coin dedicated to the emperor Domitian that showed a rider on a white horse charging into battle. Some people have interpreted seal number one to be an image of Jesus as a rider on a white horse because later in Revelation, he is a rider on a white horse. Uh, but, and that would be a, a, a very common mistake to make. But that's not what's being pictured here. What, what's being pictured here is, is military conquest. It, it is the initiation of conquering through war. And we see this in our day all over the place. In seal two, what, what we find pictured here is, is internal conflict. It's the absence of peace within a nation potentially within a nation, or within human beings that would lead, that, that lack of peace is what, what makes us so frustrated and causes us to lash out and to have a change in leadership or changes in leadership. Rome was ruled by four successive Caesars from 68 to 69, for example. In our day-to-day, -day, in the House of Representatives, we can't elect someone. We can't find anybody to lead us. There's an absence of peace. There's conflict that leads to all kinds of problems that issue from it. And as peace is taken away from humanity, they begin to turn one-on-one, -on -one, turn, turn against each other one-by-one -one in war and hatred. And again, we see this in the Middle East today. I'm not going to take time to explain the history of this conflict, but this has been going on for ever since the beginning. And what is happening here is, is absolutely horrible and terrible and tragic. And there is no uh, explaining away the brutality and, and just absurd evil that Hamas has perpetrated in, in Israel. It is the latest in a series, in a, in a long, long series. I took a class at Oxford in 2003 called Jesus Jerusalem in the Middle East, where Jerusalem has changed hands so many times it can barely be counted. These people have been at war. There's an absence of peace. There's internal conflict in the region. Seal number three has to do with famine and rampant inflation. Here the onset of famine comes as a result of war where goods are sold for 10 times the price that they should normally be sold for. So one byproduct of war that we've seen in Ukraine is the grain shortage. And so we've seen prices of commodities and of, of, of different food and, and needs around the world that just go through the roof. And that's what's happening here is there's this rise in price and rampant inflation. The, this is a black rider. He has scales in his hand. 
and he brings great hardship to humanity. And the fourth seal is widespread death. The fourth seal is opened, and it leads to the death of a quarter of the earth through war and famine and pestilence. I'm not sure of the first century example. I'm trying to show you that these things were going on in the first century, and they're still going on today. But in AD 70, in the destruction of Jerusalem, we've read in history that that was one of the worst sieges of a city that's ever happened in history. What you're seeing happen in Gaza right before your eyes, it's something like that possibly worse, because there were no UN accords, there were no conversations happening among governments trying to perhaps abate evil. No, it was just all out and total destruction of a people, and we pray we will not see anything like that in Gaza, like we did in Jerusalem in AD 70. But you need to understand these seals. The first seal, white, the white rider means conquest, red means blood, Black suggests death, and pale suggests the failing of life like a corpse. Again, I'll take you back to that Picasso picture, Guernica. It is, it's, just, it's just mass chaos because of war and strife that goes on in the world. Perhaps uncomfortably, we have to remember this. It is Jesus the king who sits over the seals, opening them up. Jesus stands sovereign over every single seal, as it is opened up. And so we have to ask the question, is Jesus the bringer or the author of evil because he stands over history? And the answer to that is no, he's not. He's not the bringer or the author of evil. But we have to realize that he could restrain evil more than he is right now. No one is keeping him from restraining it. He is restraining himself from doing something about it. That's what we learn here. And that makes us feel incredibly uncomfortable because there are terrible people, events, disasters, wars, holocausts. This is hard for us to understand or accept. How does the Bible explain the rule of Christ when there's so much evil happening in the world? How do you put that together? This is the why question of the ages. If Jesus has conquered If he's seated at the right hand of God or standing there as the slain but risen lamb, why does he allow the world to continue on with such evil and misery and sin? And Jesus wants us to ask that question today of him. He is sufficient to answer the question, okay? You may or may not accept his answer, but there is an answer that Jesus gives to this great question, one of the great questions of all time. Why does he restrain the full coming of his kingdom? What is he waiting for? You know, this is not just my question or your question. This is actually the question that the martyrs ask in the fifth seal. The martyrs ask the question, why? What for? They're asking the right question. They're not asking, they're asking why. What are you waiting for, God? What are you waiting for? Why won't you avenge our deaths? And Jesus, as he responds to the martyrs with the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals, he also instructs us. He tells us that even though in the first point, it's a a reign that is restrained, and secondly, it is also a reign that is real. It's a reign that is real, seals five through seven. So time in seals one through four, if we think about the the idea or the, the notion of the reality of time, It is just moving forward, one by one. But now with the fifth seal, what we have is we have, if you're watching a movie, you've probably seen this before, where 
the, the, plot, <clears throat> the plot continues to move forward, but there's a, a stopping, there, there's a way of focusing in on a person or an element of the story, even as time is moving forward. So in the middle of time moving forward, we pan in and we see the martyrs. And the martyrs are, we're told they're under the altar in heaven, and they are crying out to the living God. What are they crying out? From under the altar, they're crying out these prayers they collectively offer up to God as those who have been killed for the gospel. And they say, O Lord, holy, O sovereign Lord, o holy and true, not questioning his sovereignty, not questioning his holiness and goodness, not questioning that he's true, but Lord, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I want you to remember for John that among these martyrs are the other 11 disciples. He's the last one remaining. So as he sees this vision of the martyrs, he sees the other 11 disciples. Somehow he's still alive. And he sees a, a snapshot of all of the other martyrs, some, some number of martyrs that are there with them. And they're crying out to the Lord, how long before you will avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Will you allow evil to, to win? How long will you restrain, restrain yourself? When will you set the world to rights like you promised? Now this word avenge is an important one. We're told as Christians not to take our revenge out on others, but to trust the Lord. Romans 12, 19 through 21 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The martyrs cannot avenge the evil that has been done to them because they're dead. But we have to face that question. We have wrongs done to us as well. Perhaps we will not be killed for the gospel. Perhaps we will. But we're supposed to, to like the martyrs, trust the Lord with our lives, with wrongs that are done to us. Trust on God and his timing but when will you avenge evil? When will you repay the wrongs? When will you bring justice? And they implore God to bring justice in his own timing. But Jesus' real reign, first of all, is evidenced in the sacrifice or the voice of the martyrs. Jesus said when he was on earth, the kingdom of God is within you. And you see their faith. You see the faith of the martyrs. You see how they trust and believe in God. Jesus' real reign is evidenced in their sacrifice. Their relationship with Jesus the King is real. It is unaltered through death. It is unaltered. The kingdom of God is within them. And it's not just for martyrs, but anyone who knows Jesus Christ personally, there is real evidence of the reign of God in our lives as we trust him why do we walk through so many things? Why do we allow evil to be done to us, things that we cannot control? Why? It's because of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's because we know him and love him. We, we sometimes have to walk through things we can't do anything about, and we trust that God will bring vengeance, will bring justice in the world and in our lives. So the kingdom of God is within the martyrs. The kingdom of God is within the church. There's a very real reign of Christ in the church. 
So first of all, Jesus' real rule is evidenced in the martyrs. It's also evidenced in the present salvation. Jesus' real rule is evidenced in the present salvation of the church. Look at Jesus' response to the martyr's prayer from under the altar. It says, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So these martyrs are waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise, but they're not waiting on the fulfillment of God's salvation for them. They already have been clothed in salvation. Yes, there are going to be aspects of that salvation that are going to be realized in the future, but they've already been clothed. These martyrs have already been saved. We're not, we're not, we don't have to wait on the end of time to figure out whether or not we've been saved by grace. We're already clothed, already clothed in the white robe of the righteousness of Christ. When we get to heaven, we'll be given, a, I think, a real white robe from what I can understand. But you're already clothed in the white robe of Jesus Christ right now. You're not waiting on any, any of that to happen. That salvation is already yours in Jesus Christ. And we find that in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Those who are sealed with promised salvation are not just the martyrs. We look at this number 144,000. We need to ask the question, should that number be interpreted literally? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think the best way to interpret that number is to recognize that 12 in the Bible is the, the number of complete perfection. And if you double 12 and square it, you get to 144,000. And so what Jesus is basically saying here is that there is a perfect, complete number of people who are going to be Israel. This is not geopolitical Israel. They're not actually coming from each of these tribes per se. That's my, my view. But this is a, a view of what Israel has become in the church. I do think that many in Israel will be saved. I think that there will be a renewal of Jewish people. That's my view. But I think the best way to, to view this section here is that the 144,000 represents a complete number of Christians that will be brought to salvation. Because what happens to these 144,000? They are shielded from all of the wrath that is to come. What happens, the point of verses 1 through 8 in chapter 7 is that these, these people are taken and they are sealed off from experiencing the full wrath of God. And so who gets sealed off from experiencing the full wrath of God? Christians. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. And so what you have here in this 144,000 is you have a picture not just of the martyrs, they're part of the 144,000, but of all of the church that has salvation in Jesus Christ already, and we will be sealed off from experiencing the ultimate wrath that will come on the earth, which we find in seal number six, as that, is, as that is unlocked, and we'll get there in just a moment. But the martyrs and believers in Christ show us that there is a real reign of Christ that happens in the church now and will impact us greatly at the very end of time when Jesus brings wrath on the world. And then finally, Jesus' real rule is evidenced in the ongoing martyrdoms and implicitly with that, the evangelism, the ongoing evangelism of the church. So G Jesus finishes his response. He says, they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, that is the martyrs, the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves has been. So why is Jesus waiting to return? One reason he's waiting to return is that the number of martyrdoms for his name, 
as people take the gospel into hard-to-reach areas of the world, that's where martyrdoms happen. As his people take his gospel into hard-to-reach areas of the world, Jesus has ordained that there'll be a number of people who will be killed for the gospel, and that number is not yet complete. And that's one reason why Jesus is waiting. Another way of looking at it is this. Jesus has such a great heart for the world, such a great heart for all of the nations, there are still 3 billion people of the around 8 billion people living today who are unreached, who have no opportunity yet. There's not even a translation of anything into their language. And Jesus has such a great heart for these people, and these places that are yet reached for the gospel are some of the most obviously resistant places to the gospel, or the gospel would have already gone there. And Jesus is still waiting. He's waiting for his gospel to go forward through his servants, through evangelism, to the nations, to these three billion people, or people within the five billion who have a chance but haven't heard yet, to hear the gospel, to have an opportunity to respond to him and become Christians. This may be hard for us to to understand, but the inception of the gospel came through the cross of Jesus Christ. It came through Jesus spilling his blood. And so as we follow Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised at all if we encounter suffering, whether it be physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering. If you're following Jesus, you will very likely end up suffering for his name. Now, you don't need to. Some people, um, they hype up suffering. They hype up, you know, I'm going to go out. I'm going to really make a sacrifice for Jesus. You don't need to do that. All you need to do, all you need to hype up is you need to hype up Jesus and you need to follow him. And if you follow Jesus, if you make much out of Jesus, then he will lead you down a road, which is the way of the cross, which is often, often suffering for his name. So you don't need to seek out suffering You need to seek Jesus, and then you need to walk with Jesus as you walk through some of the hard things that he he walked through. Now, notice this very clearly. Why do the martyrs die? Why do they die? This may be self-evident, but I'll say it out loud. They die for evangelism. They die for evangelism. There's no other reason why you get martyred. You die because you're trying to tell people who don't want to know about Jesus, about Jesus, and they hate it. That's why Wang Yi is in prison. He called out the Communist Party and Xi Jinping in sermons and said, everybody needs to repent, including Xi Jinping, and that wasn't something that was appreciated. That's why he's in prison. That's why you get, that's why you get thrown in jail. That's why, if you're in a hard-to-reach place, that's why you might find yourself experiencing persecution. And so if you go to China and you talk to the Chinese church who's being persecuted, or you go to India, and you talk to an Indian church who's being persecuted, or Nigeria, or Iran, what you'll find is that the quality and the, the, what they find themselves talking about, both to the Lord in prayer and to one another in evangelism, is, is quite different. Because they know they're living in this wartime, they, they know that they're living in these last days, and they feel it and experience it, it impacts their prayer life. They find themselves praying for the furthering of the gospel into their country. They pray for their persecutors. They pray that people will come to know Christ in their country. They pray for their pastors who are in prison. They pray for the wives of people who 
or whose husbands are in prison. They, they pray for the furthering of the gospel. Now, in prayer, we are encouraged to pray for anything in the world. We're encouraged to pray in all times, in all seasons. But we also can kind of tell, it's a window into our lives spiritually if we look at what we pray about. If we, if we think about what we're talking to God about, it's a window into what we care about the most. And so we can look at our prayer lives and ask ourselves the question, what do I really care about the most? And then you need to assess, is that, is that how I should be praying? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with praying for anything, but is that all you should be praying about? Maybe we should have a different perspective. Or, or evangelism. I've been, when I was in Indonesia, I was very convicted in my own life, not only about just spending time with people and, and enjoying the time that we have together as a church, but also what do I spend my time doing? What are we spending our time doing? You know, it's so easy in Kerry because we have nice houses generally, you know, a lot of us have nice houses, nice cars, we have nice parks, we have nice restaurants, we have nice schools, we have nice roads, we have nice trash cans, we have everything is nice, everything's nice. And it's tempted to think that this world that we live in, this, this, this external world that we live in, indicates that we are really living in a time of spiritual peace. It's harder it's harder sometimes to understand how my neighbor, who is socioeconomically doing great, might still need Jesus as much, or maybe he needs Jesus just as much as, as everybody in the world needs Jesus. But yet we can be, it's like a lullaby for us as we, as we walk through life, where we're kind of lullabied into thinking that, you know, we're really not in a spiritual war. We're really not in a time where our spiritual lives really matter that much. But it's not true. It's not true, and we know it's not true. And we can look at our prayer lives, and we can look at our evangelism lives, what we talk about to God and talk about to others, and we can, it's like a mirror back to us. And, it, and when that mirror comes back to me, it makes me want to live more faithfully. It makes me want to live more faithfully to the Lord. As I see this passage, I see the martyrs, and I see how I live oftentimes. Because the reality is, the sixth seal will come. The sixth seal, which is at the end of chapter 6, verse 12 to 17, is the end of days, the very end of the world. And at some point, everything will unravel. Time will stop. There will be no more time. There'll be no more time for repentance. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. No, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting to condemn anyone, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The reason why he's waiting, the reason why he's restraining his rule right now is he wants more people. He has more people in the world that are part of that 144,000 who need to hear the gospel and respond to his, his grace. This is the time. This is the, the time period of repentance, and the martyrs know it, but do we know it like they do? So how do we respond to the real but restrained reign of Jesus? 
Third and finally, how do we respond to the real but restrained reign of Jesus? Well, first of all, I think an appropriate response is to, as, a, as you see in heaven when the seventh seal is revealed in verses 8 through 5 in Revelation 8, we find something that might surprise us. We should stand in silence. We should stand in silence. Heaven stops, John says, for about a half an hour. Interestingly, there's no time in heaven from how I understand it. So what that means, I think, is that it just went on for a, kind of a long time. And it was a bit uncomfortable. But no one could say anything because this is the revelation of God of what he's going to do in history. His restrained but real rule that will one day be not restrained and only fully realized. And heaven stops. Everybody covers their mouth. You know, there's no more pundits. There's no more social media posts. There's no more conjecture. There's no more arguing. It's kind of like the seventh day of creation after God made everything, and what was the response? Rest. There's nothing else to be said. God did it all. It's kind of like Job. After Job questions God and says, God, why have you done all this to my family? It's not fair. And God, for about five chapters, tells Job, explains to Job, really asks Job about 150 questions that God knows the answer to, but Job doesn't know the answer to. And what is Job's response? He puts his hand over his mouth, and he stops talking. And I think it's a really appropriate response for us when we read this passage just to stop and just to realize that God is God and we are not. And he does want us to ask our questions to him. And he gives us an answer. At the end, we, we have to stand in silence. We, we should stand in awe of God at the end of a passage like this. We can still ask him our questions, sure. But there should be a way of getting our awe back. You know, a lot of a lot of what happens that goes wrong in our spiritual lives is we live with a lack of awe of God. We, we feel like ourselves, we ourselves are worthy of so much more than we are and that he's not very worthy and then we need to get our awe back and it puts everything in perspective. So how often do you, upon considering who God is, stop talking and sit in silence and, and worship him? It's a... It's a right response to the real but restrained rule of God over history. And then secondly, an appropriate response is to share the gospel. Is to share the gospel. And it's to pray. Pray for missionaries. Pray for the global church. The right response is to, to pray and to personally, pray for and to personally share the gospel of grace to do what we can to extend the gospel in this time when there, we know there will one day be no more time left for repentance, but now there's still time. In the overlap of seals one through four and seal five, this is the overlap of evangelism. Seals one through four are going forward and then God pans in on seal five and says, what should you be doing? Learn from the martyrs, share your faith. Yes, cry out to me, how long, O Lord? It's the right prayer. How long? As you cry that prayer out, share the gospel. Because there's still a number of people out there that have not heard the gospel that need to hear it. We need to share the gospel even with those who don't want to hear about Christ. 
That's very countercultural. We're told that you can share the gospel with people if they're interested, but if somebody's not interested in Christ and you tell them about Christ, especially somebody who hates Christ, that's not, that's not cool, that's not kind. The problem is that's the person who needs to hear the gospel. And so if we live in the politically correct norms set by our society, we, we really can't follow Jesus. We need to tell people humbly and winsomely and lovingly, but boldly, about Jesus. So my college professor asked the question, why is Jesus taking so long? And he asked it in mockery, but the martyrs asked the same question, but they ask it for an entirely different reason. Why are you waiting, Lord? And Jesus gives the answer, I'm waiting so that evangelism will continue to go forward in the world, so that more people will hear about me, so that the 144,000 will be complete, and then I will come and I will... I will execute justice, and we need a God who will execute justice. You can't live in this world and see what's happening with Hamas and Russia and China and Nigeria and so many countries and not want seal six to happen. We want a God who will set the world to rights. We want a God, and we do have a God who will bring justice, whose, evil, whose rule will not be restrained against evil. He will come. And he will set the world to rights. And we're waiting on that. But as we wait, let's tell other people about his grace and his goodness. Let's pray. Lord, as our confession said this morning, who are we, Lord, that in the midst of all of this, Picasso-like, Guernica-like, jumbling of body parts and war and famine and destruction in our world that, that you would take us and, and, and pull us out and you would bring us to yourself and that you would love us and that you would put us with you and that you, by your grace, would shield us from the wrath that is to come. Lord, I don't, I don't know how to explain that other than the fact that you are a God of great sovereign grace. And so I'm so grateful. But I pray that in the reality of that, that you are a God who saves like that, that we would go out and that we would pray and that we would speak in such a way to you and for you so that many might know who you are. Lord God, we recognize that as a hard thing for us. And so we do pray that you would teach us, you pray that you'd encourage us and empower us, teach us to be wise, teach us to be winsome, but teach us not to be afraid. Teach us to be willing to share the, the reason for the hope that we have in you. Well, we thank you so much, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.